Lord Jesus, in this space, can we just say that you are great and you are good and you are holy. God, we recognize that in this season of life, things are kind of turned upside down, but God, you are still enthroned. You are still God over all the earth. So God, we turn our hearts and our minds and our spirits to you and say, God, you are good. God, you are great. You are holy. And Jesus, as we enter this space, God, I ask that you would reveal our hearts to us. God, ways that our hearts have maybe wandered, ways our hearts have sought after other things in the last few weeks and months. God, reveal to us ways in which we have enthroned fear and anxiety and worry, and we are worshiping at the altar. God of other gods. And we just pray, Jesus, that in this moment you would realign our hearts and our minds. God, bring us to our knees in repentance that we might follow you with all of who we are. In the powerful, powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's wonderful to be with you guys. You may be seated. It's good to be here. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of serving on the team here at Wellspring. Now, super glad you're here. It's kind of fun today. We have folks in the sanctuary. We have folks in the fellowship hall. We have folks up in the balcony up there. We have folks down in the basement. We've got people all over the place, and we got tons of people in homes all around the peninsula. It's so good to be with you this morning. Now, if you're a parent with little kids, just want to say there's tons of grace in this place. We realize we don't have kids ministry, uh, so we are here for you and with you, and there's tons of grace. Uh, also want to let you know there are a number of families in the basement where it's a, there's a little more, uh, I don't know, room for extravagance if your children want to uh, have a little more to say during the service. That is an awesome place. Uh, we care for you. You're welcome wherever you want to be. Now, with that said, we're actually just finished a series in Ruth, and now we're going to go back to, if you remember, at the beginning of 2020, which feels like, at least for me, a ridiculously long time ago. Anyone else? Holy cow. Like, I, anyway, so if you remember, way back in those ancient days, you know, we were starting a series in 1 Corinthians. We got through March chapter 5, and then COVID hit, and we've been sort of piecemealing our way through the last few months. Well, we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians this week. Now, the thing about going back to 1 Corinthians, though, is literally we are reading someone else's mail. Like, literally. This is a letter, right, that Paul sent to Corinth. And in order to understand someone else's mail, we need to understand the context of what is going on. Like, could you imagine if you sent a personal letter to a group of people and then someone just read it totally out of context, they're just going to make stuff up. Like, they're just going to make all these assumptions. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do a reintroduction. So in January, we spent three weeks sort of setting the, the ground floor so that we could enter into 1 Corinthians with a little bit of insight. Today, we're going to do a reintroduction, sort of like a quick 30,000 feet 
tell me a little about Corinth. Tell me a little bit about Paul, and then specifically the letter of the Corinthians up to this point that we've gone through chapter 5, up to that point. What's like a quick cliff note? So we're going to look at place, the author, Paul, and then the letter itself. And I want to start with Corinth um, and place, and there's a few reasons for this. I learned in my early 20s that if you go to a place, there are very different cultural assumptions. So I was raised in Oakland, Berkeley area in California, and there, uh, probably like here, if I wore shorts on a hot day, no big deal. Like, who here wears shorts on a hot day and doesn't even think twice about it? Everyone? Yeah, totally, right? So, I'm thinking, I'm just going to wear shorts. Then I went down to Southern California, exact same thing for college. But then I decided, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. So I went to the Peace Corps. I ended up in a place at the border of Kenya and Tanzania. And if I walked around this village where I was living, wearing shorts, everyone would have automatically assumed that I was an immoral person. Shorts, who would have thought? So what happens? Before I'm sent into this village at the corner, right, of Tanzania and Kenya, there is a training. And this training tells me, you should wear pants, not shorts. And no matter what you do, people will not then assume that you are unethical and immoral. Place matters. That's why I want to take a moment to talk about Corinth. I want to talk about the culture so that when we get into the letter, we have a little more of a sense of what are the assumptions the, you know, the good things, the bad things, the awesome things, and the not-so-cool stuff about Corinthian culture and society. All right, let's look at this map. So this is a map of Corinth. So Corinth is located uh, basically between the mainland of Greece, and then uh, to the left, it says the Peloponnese. It's like this large island. And there's this little land bridge that connects the main island to the Peloponnese. And Corinth is right there. This is important for a lot of reasons. The first being this. Corinth is super important as a place of trade and commerce. So Corinth links Asia to Italy. All the trade routes through Asia go through Greece, go through Corinth to get to Rome. So the distance, if we go back to or go to the next map, the trade route, basically the farthest place on the corner of the Peloponnese, to Italy, that's only six miles. So it's actually really close. And there's two ways you can get to uh, Rome or to Italy from that little Corinthian spot. You can either go south, and that's the Cape of Malia. Now, the Cape of Malia, there was this trade lingo. They say, see Malia twice and die, because it's super dangerous. So what the Corinthians did, they're ingenious, creative people, is they basically created this land road for boats that allowed them to go up, which would be the next map, through that little waterway. They created this land bridge, basically these huge rollers, and they would put boats on it, and then they would roll them over to land, and then they would drop them in the water. And it saved six days of travel from a trade perspective. If you're a businessman, you know six days of getting your stuff somewhere matters. That's money, right? And it's way safer. So all the trade would then go through Corinth and their little land bridge. They'd have all the businessmen going through that area. All trade would then go to Rome and into Italy. Does that make sense? Corinth is the center of travel. 
Second, Corinth is refounded uh, by Rome. So Rome destroys Corinth in 146 BC and then refounds it in 44 BC by this guy named Julius Caesar because of its strategic location. Now, what Rome did when they refounded a place is they would basically take uh, former military, uh, present slaves, and former slaves, and they would take them out of Rome in order to depopulate Rome and send them to a new colony because these people would be really hungry to make some money and for the opportunity, right? This was a huge opportunity. So in 44 BC, they send these people back to Corinth, and these people are hungry for social standing and economic advancement. So what you see is this huge growth in the economy. And you see this huge and pivotal opportunity for their social and economic advancement. Because of this, the culture that forms in Corinth is very entrepreneurial. It's very business life. It's very competitive. There's a lot of independence and autonomy that is valued in this place often more than respect and love and truth. It's this very driven, competitive, achievement, self-promotion culture. Corinth also is a place where there's a high value for rhetoric. Now, rhetoric is, in classical Greece, basically is effective communication of truth. Right? So the end goal of classical rhetoric is truth. But that's not what's happening in Corinth. There's this group of people that are called the sophists. They're also really into rhetoric, but they care about winning arguments, not really about truth. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to seek wealthy patrons in this society of these entrepreneurial guys that are trying to make some money, trying to increase their social standing, so they're trying to court them to fund their rhetoric campaigns. And they're kind of like movie star, professor, salesmen. So in this culture that values self-promotion, right, they're trying to promote themselves and get these people to buy into their knowledge and their wisdom. Not necessarily what is true or good or beneficial, but basically who can be the best arguer, who can put on the best presentation. Fourth, Corinth is a pluralistic or really diverse religious space. So there's, archaeologists have found at least 26 different temples or religious sites in Corinth. So if you walk down the street, there's lots of different gods you can worship. There's lots of different potential places to give your devotion and affection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, right, there's many gods and many lords in Corinth. Lastly, in Corinth, there's this thing called the Isthmian Games. So there's three major games or festivals in Greece. The Olympics are, is one you probably are familiar with. All right, so this one would have been a little smaller than the Olympics, but there would have been spectators and participants from the entire Roman Empire that would have come. This is a really, really big deal. Paul likely arrives in Corinth right after the games of AD 49 and before the game, or during, he stays there during the games of AD 51. All these people are coming. And that's Corinth. That's the place Paul is writing to. This is the people he's writing to. But who is Paul? If you're not familiar with Paul, Paul is one of the prominent writers of the New Testament. Paul arguably is the reason outside of God 
that the gospel goes from Judea and Jerusalem to the entire Greco-Roman world because of Paul. But Paul's story is crazy if you're not familiar with it. All right, Paul's early life, we don't know a ton about. We know he's born in Tarsus, and we know he's super dedicated to his Jewish faith. Paul writes about himself in Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. There's a couple of things I want to tease out here. One, advancing. Advancing in Greek is actually a nautical term. So this is about making advancement in a boat, a boat when the headwinds are opposing you. So Paul, right, and this, as it was applied in the Roman world, this had to do with spiritual and moral formation and development in the individual. So Paul is saying, hey, I was learning a ton about God and the traditions of my fathers in Judaism, way more than the other kids my age. And he explains why. What does he say? He's extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Right? Paul's focused on keeping these traditions alive and defending them. Now, as a point of contrast, right, we live in a world that affirms the new. Right? So, if we were doing an advertising campaign, we would do something like this, right? New and improved. Right? If we want to sell soap today, if you want to sell soap, you're like, this soap is going to clean you better than any soap. We've, we've done research chemically, like this soap, we've improved it. It is better than any soap that came before, right? Like super intuitive for us, new and improved. If you're in the ancient world, if you want to sell something, what you say is, this is unchanged for centuries. This soap has been in our family for 500 years. We have not changed the recipe once in 500 years. You can trust this soap. This soap will clean you. Unchanged for centuries. Right? So it kind of makes sense. Right? Paul isn't interested in the new thing. Paul is interested in defending the old. Right? And so it shouldn't surprise us that Paul is zealous about the traditions of his forefathers. He's mistrustful of the new and improved. So when this new thing, Christianity, pops up on the scene, what does he do? He persecuted the church of God beyond all measure and tries to destroy it. Right? Specifically, what does he do? He tries to persecute the church in Jerusalem and Judea. When the first martyr, Stephen, is killed... One of the accusations against him is this. He was trying to change the customs of Moses handed down to us. He's trying to change stuff. Like, we want it to stay the same. He's trying to change it. And Paul and the others, they'll have none of it. So much so that Paul then asks, he gets permission to actually eradicate the early church. And he says, hey, let me go up to Damascus, which is kind of like going from here to somewhere between Stockton and Sacramento. So you get on your horse, you start walking. It's about, you know, 135 to 175 miles, depending on which route you take. He starts going. Now, if you don't know the story, it's on this trip up to Damascus that Paul has this profound encounter with Jesus. Paul realizes in this moment that everything he's been doing up to this point has been wrong in persecuting the church. Right? If the voice from heaven, this voice from heaven calls out to him and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? 
Now, he knows in that moment that he's on the wrong track, right? Because if he was on the right track, the voice from heaven would have said, Paul, Paul, you're amazing. Go for it. But instead, what happens? He falls blind off of his horse, and he knows that these Christian claims, these new and improved claims are right. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's not just one rabbi among many, but he's actually God. And he seems to quickly realize also this isn't just a personal experience. Like, oh, I had my awesome moment with God, but this is a personal experience. He doesn't seem to have that uh, internalization. He realized this is meant to share. And we know this because in Galatians 1.15, Paul writes that God reveals himself in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And what we see historically is that Paul, almost immediately after this encounter, starts talking about Jesus in Damascus. And it says in the text in Acts 9.23 that he talks about Jesus for many days in Damascus. And then you'll go on these three major missionary journeys throughout the whole Greco-Roman world. And it's on the second journey that he ends up in a place called Corinth. And he's coming from Athens, from the mainland, right, in Athens. In Acts 18, he arrives in Corinth for the first time. He meets Priscilla and Aquila, who end up being partners in ministry for him. He starts his tent-making business, which is how he supports himself when he's on the road trying to do ministry. And he ends up staying in Corinth for 18 months, longer than he stays almost anywhere else, investing in, developing a church, really loving on these people. Then after 18 months, what does he do, right? He keeps going, keeps on his second journey, and then he'll do another journey. But he's trying to plant churches around the Greco-Roman world. Now, after he plants a church, what he does is he writes letters. And these letters are for him a way to guide this new, these new believers in the faith, right? A lot of these churches are primarily Greek. They don't know a ton about the Old Testament. And they don't have the New Testament. Think about how hard it is for you to follow Jesus right now. Like, it's not the easiest thing in the world. And you have the New Testament. You have 2,000 years of church history helping you along. These guys have 18 months with Paul as he's tent making, saying, hey guys, this is how everything you need to change, this is all the things, and they're just like, holy cow, this is drinking from a fire hose. So what does Paul do? He keeps writing letters to the churches so they can try to follow Jesus faithfully. Now most scholars think that this is not the first letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians. Most scholars think that actually 1 Corinthians is the second letter. There's a reason here. 1 Corinthians 5.9 refers to Paul saying, hey, I wrote a previous letter to you. So in 1 Corinthians, there's a reference to a previous letter. So likely, this is at least the second letter. We call it 1 Corinthians because it's the first of two we have in our Bible. Now, most likely, Paul is in Ephesus when he gets the, when he, when he writes this letter to the Corinthians. So, what's happened is, uh, there are three folks from the church, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, and they come to visit Paul in Ephesus. 
and they likely carry a letter from the church in Corinth with questions they want him to answer. Right? And this makes sense. I remember uh, I had this profound encounter with God in college, and I knew nothing about the Bible. I knew nothing about Jesus. And I remember there was this guy named Dave Brock. And I had the New Testament and the Old Testament, and because of that, I had thousands of questions. And I remember I'd like read part of it, and then the next day I'd go to Dave and be like, Dave, I need you to help me with this. I do not get it. Right? And this basically was like every day for the next few years. I had lots of questions. So you can imagine this group of people, this little church, their mentor, their leader leaves them, right? It's been about three years now, and they're, they have this process of writing letters to Paul, and Paul's like, oh, let me help you with that. So Paul gets their request on questions, and that forms part of the response of 1 Corinthians. But Paul also has other information. What we learn in 1 Corinthians 1.11 is that there's these people called Chloe's people. Now, Chloe's in the church in Corinth, and she has sent people to Paul with the gossip. So, he gets their official questions, but then he gets the dirt. What's really happening? I mean, you know this, right? Like, we want to talk about the things we want to talk about. So, we have a question, we're like, oh, ask, you know, ask about this. And then the friend is like, no, no, you really need to ask them about this part of their life. So Paul's getting both of those angles, their questions and what everyone else really thinks they need to talk about. And Chloe's people lets Paul know, oh man, there are so many divisions in Corinth right now. Paul, you got to address it. So what we find in 1 Corinthians is basically Paul's response to all those divisions that are happening that are also connected to their questions. I want you to imagine this just from a relational perspective. Have you ever invested like 18 months, like over a year into someone or something, like given all of who you were into it? Have you ever done that? Like after 18 months, you're in. You're in. Like your heart, your mind, your spirit, you're invested. Right? That's Paul. He gives all of who he is. And then he leaves, right, to go do this somewhere else. And within three years of his departure, things are falling apart. All kinds of divisions are surfing, surfacing. The, Christian, or the Corinthians are starting to behave like the people of Corinth versus God's people in Corinth. They're losing ch- touch with Jesus' example and just basically doing what everyone around them is doing. Right? They have these famous teachers that are trying to curry support and get people to buy in. And now the Corinthians are basically taking that model and now they're applying it into their church. So just as, oh, I follow this sophist teacher, I follow this sophist teacher, and there's this competitiveness, right, in the culture. Now they're doing it with leaders within the church. Oh, Peter, oh, Paul, Apollos, man, I follow this guy. And now they're starting to fight over it to see who can win, who can come out on top. Right? Paul tried to teach them that it wasn't about who could turn the best phrase or who had the best presentation. He tried to teach them that it was about Jesus and His work on the cross, right? living out in obedience to the Spirit. But somehow, over the last three years, that message has been lost. Maybe you relate to this. I don't know, can you think of something maybe in the last two or three years that you felt like, 
deeply convicted about. Like, oh, I need to do this. Oh, it's just like, if I don't do this, I'm in trouble. Can you think of something over the last two or three years, you're like, some sort of moment or experience, you're just like, I need to do this, right? And now you look back and you're like, huh, what happened to that? Or maybe even just think of what you were convicted of in March. Then COVID happens and now you're like, uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's really easy to drift. And I think that's happened in Corinth. They're starting to drift back to old behaviors, old ways of doing things, and they've lost touch with Jesus' example, the teaching of Paul. So one of the things we're going to find in 1 Corinthians is it's all about, the center of 1 Corinthians is about how do we come together as a body, submitted to the lordship of Jesus, not elevating our preferences and style and our things above Jesus and the unity of the body. The thesis of 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians 10, 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers. This, this would be for the whole congregation. They just used in the ancient world, brothers, but in our context, that's everyone. Appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united, united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul begins 1 Corinthians by making this appeal, not in his name. You notice that? He doesn't say, in the name of Paul, I appeal to you. He says, I appeal to you in the name of Jesus, who we all agree, right? We're all here, right? Not because we like feta. We're not like the feta group. It's like, oh, you like feta? Let's hang out on Sunday morning, right? They're hanging out together because they all have agreed Jesus is the Lord, not me, not you. So Paul makes three appeals. The first is that they agree. Now, agree doesn't mean they have to be like robots, right? This isn't, I have to do everything the same, right? It's more like be on the same page. Let's agree that Jesus is Lord. Lift it up, right? Above our preferences, above our minor allegiances, let's let Jesus be the primary allegiance of our life. Second, he asked them, hey, let's there be no divisions. Now, this word division comes from the Greek word schismata, where we get the word schism. Interestingly, it's used at the beginning of Mark 1-2, and it refers to the tearing of fishing nets. Right, so you have a fishing net, now it has tears in it, and then what happens, right? The fish just go right through. Paul's like, hey, I left you guys. You were worshiping Jesus as Lord. The net? was together. In the last three years, this net has torn. This isn't good. Three, he asked them to be united of the same mind and judgment. Again, this word united in Greek specifically refers to being restored to a prior condition, right? Putting back together of what has fallen apart. Again, this is used in Mark 1.19, the mending of fishing nets. Paul left three years ago, and the net of the community was, was together. It wasn't torn. Three years later, he's writing to them, and the net has been torn, and Paul's like, hey, we need to fix this net. We need to mend it so that we are all united under Jesus. 
right? Not divided by our preferences, right? And united is not simply the absence of conflict, as if we can pretend like, oh, it's all okay, you know, we're really okay. It's like, no, 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 not at all. Being united for Paul means that we are all committed to following Jesus first. We are submitted to His Lordship first, right? And that shapes our community as we declare the gospel in the world. And so Paul leaves Corinth after 18 months of ministry. Things are good, right? The net has not torn. Three years later, they're arguing among each other about who's better, right? The competitiveness of the culture is starting to seep into the church. The self-promotion of the culture is starting to seep into the church. They're picking people just like they would pick their favorite sophists. They're picking people and creating division around it. Honestly, this is the heart of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He's trying to work out all these disagreements that have surfaced over the last three years. And over the next few months, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into all of these conflicts that have happened in Corinth 2,000 years ago and try and use them and learn from them in our body. Like next week, chapter 5 begins with a question that comes out of Corinth. So what do you do with the guy who is sleeping with his mother-in-law? Yep, that's next week. (laughs) Questions like that. What do you do with people that are getting drunk at communion during service? What do you do about food that's sacrificed to idols? Do we eat it? Do we not? What about spiritual gifts? Am I better than this person if my gift is on the stage or a little more loud? Am, am I better than this person? Or am I worse than this person if my gift is different, maybe less highlighted in the body life? Am I worse? What about marriage? What about singleness? These are all questions that are going to come up, and all of them are going to hit the ground for us in our everyday life, even though they're contextually different. They're going to speak into our reality. Because the truth is, we are a church that also has all kinds of questions. We are a church of broken people, just like they were in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and we are trying the best we can to submit our lives to Jesus, even though many of us struggle at it. But God has something for us, I think, in this series as we lean into their questions. I think they will speak into some of our own. All right, so how does then this reintroduction, this sort of three-part summary, speak into our life today? The first thing is, I really think that we need to consider our drift. Are we drifting? Just like the Corinthians just like the Corinthians, Paul came, he was in person, he leaves for three years, and then they start drifting. As I was thinking about this, I was like, oh wait, does this at all relate to us? Right, we were in person in March, now we're sort of a little more distant, and I think that distance creates the possibility of drift. It just does. 
There's something about the embodied reminder of being with other people on Sunday morning, not wearing masks, not social distancing. There's something about being in classes and communities where you can touch and be together that does something, that keeps us from drifting. There's just something that God made us embodied creatures for a reason. And the thing I've realized is that if at the beginning of COVID-19, about four months ago, I don't know, I lose track. I feel like it's like, I don't know, five years ago, three weeks ago, like who knows anymore. Um, The beginning of COVID, if you did not have amazing personal disciplines, spiritual disciplines, my guess is that you have drifted a fair amount over the last few months. I mean, I feel this in myself. Because there's something about gathering with people. There's something about the positive peer pressure, the positive reinforcement of being with people that sort of is like, oh, wait, I should be doing this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I I should be praying. I should be reading my Bible. I should be doing all these things, right? We talk about Abel all the time. Attending to the voice of God. Being a blessing in the world. Learning from the scriptures. Eating with other people, right? As a way to embody the welcome of God. Like those kind of things. Unless you were rocking that going into March, my guess is you've drifted a fair amount because what COVID has done has upped the ante of personal responsibility for everyone in this room and in a house or in the basement or in the, the loft up there today, right? The last three months, personal responsibility has gone through the, through the ceiling, And if you weren't rocking personal disciplines then, I just think it is exposed in a lot of us. Like our lack of that, whatever you want to call it. And so we drift. And I don't think like the Corinthians, I don't think it's like a mean thing. I don't think we're bad people. I just think it is easy when life changes radically like this to lose our bearings and to lose our feet. I think I would just ask you, what has your drift been like? The phrase that kept coming to my mind was, I think we need to do like a spiritual audit. Like what were the practices you were doing when March started? What has changed? And how did you respond to those changes? What are you doing in your life so that you do not drift? What are the practices? What are the disciplines? What are the rhythms you have in place? And if you're sitting there like, uh, I have no idea how to do that, I would love, and take me up on it, because whenever I do these things, no one ever takes me up on it. Like, send me an email, let's connect. It is like a deep joy of mine to help coach during these moments. And I think we need coaches. I think we need guides in this time because we're dealing with something that is unprecedented and difficult and we can't often get to clarity by ourselves. We almost always don't get to clarity alone. We get to clarity with other people. If you don't have my email, it's tony at wellspringchurchpg.org. Send me an email. Let's set up a phone call. Let's figure out a way so that we can stop the drift. Drift. Just as the Corinthians drifted, I think we can too, especially in the shadow of COVID-19. 
Two, I think we really need to consider what does it look like to pursue unity in this season? Just as the Corinthians were in a season where all kinds of divisions are surfacing, we are in a season of major national conversations that could create local division. And I think we need to be aware of that. I mean, right now, we are approaching a huge election in November, and you can already feel the division starting to happen, certainly nationally, certainly regionally, and I think locally too. What does it look like for us to not allow our political passions to overshadow our unity in Jesus? We can be passionate. Awesome. What does it look like for us to allow Jesus to be Lord over all? In COVID-19, there's all kinds of ways that divisiveness can play out, right? Should we open the government? Should we not? Should we shut things down? Should we not? Should people come to church or remain at home? There's all kinds of different ways that divisiveness can surface in this season. I don't think it has to, though. What does it look like for us to allow Jesus to speak to us individually, trusting that the Spirit has given us the ability to individually discern what is best for our individual selves or our households? And as a nation, especially as we talk about race, right, in a nation that is so often divided over skin color and what does it look like for us as a body to embody the gospel and the welcome of God. And the gospel is for all of us. But what that means is that we need to honor the experiences, the life experiences, the stories the backgrounds and perspectives of everyone who enters into this place, regardless of their ethnic background, their socioeconomic background, their gender. What does it look like for us to honor each other as they come and as Jesus would, right? All under the lordship of God. The awesome thing is when this church considered doing a replant, right? This was nearly three years ago. There was about 50 people, 60 people here, and they were offered an analogy. They were told this. They were said, hey, your church is a field, and God is in a bulldozer, and he's in the other corner, one corner. And you are in the other corner, and you have the keys. And then they were told, all right, you have a choice. Are you going to give God the keys to the bulldozer and let him do what he wants with the field? Bulldoze it, keep it the same, whatever. Or are you going to hold on to control? And they decided as a group, we're going to give God control. We're going to let go of our preferences and allow God to be in control of this place. And it created this incredible sense of unity in our body as we started this church plant three years ago. Because the basic foundational DNA was an open-handed posture of God, we want you to be big and our preferences to be small. Even if we're passionate people. I mean, these are passionate, smart, informed people. But what they're saying is, God, we will open our hands to you to be Lord so that we do not create divisiveness in this place, something that had haunted this place up until that time. What does it look like for you and me to set aside our preferences so that God is honored in this place? in a season when divisiveness in our nation is almost the defining feature of every conversation and every community. What does it look like for the church to be a place to say, oh, no, 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 we serve Jesus. 
want to invite the worship team up. And as we enter worship, I just invite you to consider two things. What? If you were to look at your life, how have you drifted? Do you feel like you're drawing closer to Jesus or do you feel like you're kind of floating out there? Maybe a little bit lost. And then two, I'd like you to consider what does it look like for you to personally pursue unity? What are the things internal to you that are the potential of creating divisiveness in our corporate experience? What does it look like for you to let those things die at the cross that we might come together? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are good and you are holy and you are beautiful. And Holy Spirit, in this moment, we just invite you to convict us whether we are in the sanctuary or the fellowship hall or the basement or in our house on a couch, God, we pray for your conviction to come. God, you would give us eyes to see the ways that we have drifted. God, give us a repentant spirit that is willing to submit to you, not our preferences. And God, we pray that as a body, you would come and you would unite us. You would mend the net of our body. God, if there are any tears, God, would you mend our hearts and our minds and our spirits that everything we do would be for your glory and your honor. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, into this place.